everyone. Welcome back to another week of Antidote Stories and Medicine. This is Christine. I'm so glad to have you. And of course, now is the time to announce the winner of our little giveaway for the signed copy of Dr. Jonathan Howard's book, Cognitive Errors and Diagnostic Mistakes, A Case-Based Guide to Critical Thinking in Medicine. So the winner is Tessa Mack, our school nurse guest from a couple episodes ago, (laughs) who is an avid listener of the show, and I am so grateful to have her. It was really not much of a raffle, to be honest, because statistically there was really not much of a way that anyone else was going to win because I think most of the entries were from Tessa. She probably promoted the podcast. Well, I should say she definitely promoted the podcast way more than I did in the last couple of weeks with all of her sharing and just posting on Twitter. So I am so, so grateful. So Tessa, this is very, very well earned and I cannot wait to mail this to you and I hope you really enjoy the book. So please reach out to me again and I will send you the book. Anyone else that did not win, thank you so much for sharing. It would have been very cool to send it to Norway or the UK. So thanks for everyone that was entering from all over the world. It was just really cool to do this. If you guys like this kind of thing, I'm going to try and do more of it. Just let me know. I love having some feedback. All right. So this week, we have a little bit of a different episode. Uh, This week was actually recorded way back in the fall when I was just starting the podcast. And so the audio is going to sound a little bit different uh, because I've definitely learned a lot as uh, as the podcast has grown and I've grown in this world of audio engineering, although there's still much to be learned. But it's it's a very personal episode for me. And as you guys know, I will def- I definitely share very personal things with you. But this is probably one of the more personal ones. This episode is with my dad. And it's about the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. So my dad is an avid marathon runner, and I was working on the ambulance that day. I will be very clear up front. I was not at the finish line. I was not treating anyone that was wounded at the marathon. I very much hate people that um, claim they were doing things that they were not. I don't believe in stolen valor. I, I will be very upfront about that. I was not at the bombing itself. However, many, many of my friends were. Many of my old partners were there. Um, Many of the people that I worked with day to day in the hospitals were the ones receiving those patients or volunteering along the route. And I had worked the marathon in years past on the ambulance. So it was just a very personal thing, of course, being in the EMS community, but also having my dad running it and expecting him to be finishing right as I was hearing the bombs were going off through our dispatch radios and CMED. And then, of course, the rest of the week, just being on very high alert where they were looking for the bombers and working on the ambulance, we never knew if the next call we were going on was going to be one where they found them or one where we were going to be involved or we had to just kind of be ready for whenever the cops were going to uh, take them down. So it was a very interesting part of my career in EMS and that we culminated with me not caring for someone that was very prominent in this, but uh, just by happenstance being at a hospital when that person was brought in and was worked. And of course, we don't want to violate HIPAA. And this patient was never my patient. And I did not work at that facility. But I'm not going to really go into more of it. But witnessing that 
and then putting it all together uh, afterwards as there was the massive citywide shutdown and living in that area. These were all just very big things for my community. So this first episode, and I'm saying first because I'm planning on there being more about this, uh, this first episode is not as much about medicine, but more so about the community of runners, about the community of the Boston Marathon. There's so many stories about the horror of what the terrorists did and the heroics of the medical community and the police and everything, and that should be told as well. But I wanted to kind of start off by saying this is the spirit of the Boston Marathon. This is why this event is so important to the people of Boston, to Massachusetts, to the runners, to everyone that works there. So I think my dad, who has run (laughs) many, many Boston Marathons, is a good person to tell it. And hopefully uh, I have someone lined up who was actually one of the medical personnel at the finish line tent and and treated a lot of the victims there. And he is going to be telling his side of the story on a future episode. I will say that's a hopeful thing because in the world of podcasting, it hasn't been recorded yet, so I can't guarantee it, <laughs> but he has agreed to do it. Uh, but he's actually training for today's marathon. So today is April 15th, 2019, which is the 123rd Boston Marathon. And good luck to this gentleman. And hopefully I'll be able to introduce him to you all in a later episode. I had big ideas of doing a series, one from a runner, one from a doctor at the scene, one from a nurse in the hospital, and one from EMS perspectives. I had known a lot of partners that I used to work with that went on to Boston EMS and were actually at the scene when it happened. And after finding out that one person that I knew ended up having a lot of difficulty afterwards, I decided that I didn't want to reach out to them. Um, I had not been in contact with them regularly throughout the years, and I never want this podcast to be exploitive. I never want to sensationalize anything. I never want interviews to be painful for anyone. So I felt that it wasn't appropriate for me to reach out to them. That being said, if anyone listening to this and you want to share your story of what you did on that day, I would love to talk to you about it. I would love to share the story of the people that were in the hospital, in the ORs, in the ERs, um, the people that were at the finish line or at the med tents. I would I would love to share what you did and I would love to talk to you about it, but I did not think it was appropriate for me to reach out to people in general out of the blue. Uh, the person that I am tentatively going to be speaking to has spoken publicly about this multiple times and did agree, so I felt a little bit more comfortable asking them. This is a pretty complicated story for me to be talking about, so um, yeah, that's that's my thoughts on it. I'm not going to do the usual exit stuff at the end of the show. I'm just going to kind of let this uh, interview run. So anyone that wants to talk to me, anyone want, that wants to reach out about this episode or share their own story about it, please reach out to me on social media. As always, email is antidotespodcast at gmail.com. Facebook is Antidote Stories and Medicine Podcast. And Twitter is Antidotes Pod. Instagram is Antidotes Podcast. So I, I really hope you enjoy this episode. It means a lot to me. And yeah, here we go. To start off, I'm going to have my dad talk to me about what it was like to 
run the marathon that day. He's run the Boston Marathon several times. So uh, welcome, Dad, George. <laughs> Hello. How are you? <laughs> so, Dad, this was your eighth marathon? Boston yeah, marathon? I, I think it was about the eighth. We, um, I'd been running it, I don't know. I've run a total of about 10 times. It's was sort of a, uh, a tradition for me and my friends. We would run Boston in the spring and another race in the winter to qualify. And I've had this, been lucky enough to have this running group of friends. Uh, we meet every Sunday for our long runs for like the last 15 years. So there's six to eight of us always doing this crazy marathon activity. And actually four of us were running the race that year and I tell people for me it was like two different races that year because that year the weather was near perfect we were having a great time running the race we decided we weren't going to run hard we weren't going to try to crush the course which usually ends badly at Boston anyways the course usually crushes you and so we were just having a good time running the course and actually my favorite running photograph um, is from that day on that course with four of us running side by side up Heartbreak Hill. Um, and one of my friends, Matt, you can see in the photo, looks like he's telling some kind of a joke. And my other friends are going, uh-oh, another Maddie story. <laughs> and this is my typical photo of here I am struggling and working like like mad trying to get up Heartbreak Hill. <laughs> but it's a great photo, and I, I gave copies to all my friends. And so that was like a whole different race because after that um, is when everything kind of went crazy because uh, after Heartbreak Hill, you go down past Boston College and then th down uh, Beacon Street and you go past Fenway, which is a great scene where all of the Red Sox game had just gotten out. So you've got tens of thousands of people in Kenmore Square mobbed and you're running through this narrow corridor through, through, uh, through the square and it's like a parade there and you got a mile to go to the finish. You're at the Sitco sign. And it's just an awesome place. There's always a huge crowds whenever you yeah. run the marathon before. Right. Everyone says Heartbreak Hill is really terrible to go up, but you've always told me that running down Heartbreak Hill, at the end of it, tenses up your muscles? Well, yeah. So one of the things about Boston, everybody knows Boston for the, for the hills in Newton, Heartbreak Hills. But those happen around after mile 16 to about 20. The problem with Boston is the first 16 miles are net downhill. And nobody runs downhill for 16 miles. And that just kills your quads. So usually by the time you hit Heartbreak Hill, your quads are pretty well gone. And for me, actually, going up Heartbreak Hill has always been a, a little bit of focus. But the worst part is on the other side. So you get up Heartbreak Hill, and you right there at the top is Boston College, uh, the cathedral at Boston College. And I remember one year going up there, and this woman got to the top. And now it's all downhill and flat to the finish line. And she just started the downhill and she collapsed into the gutter and she was crying because she was like, oh, my God, my legs can't take it. My quads, I cannot get down this hill. This is insane. And I just went up to her and I said, come on, just stand up. We'll walk backwards for a while because that's the trick. That a mar after a marathon or when your legs are sore from one, you walk or run backwards. So I said, all right, we'll stay together. We'll walk backwards. So we walked backwards for maybe a quarter of a mile. And she said, oh, my legs are starting to feel a little better. I said, all right, let's turn around. Let's walk forwards. And so we did that for a little bit more. And then after that, she was able to jog slowly and she was okay. But she had never experienced that before. So she didn't know what to do. She would have, she was like ready to collapse in a heap crying on the side because she couldn't go on. 
but I help work her through it. That's sort of like paying it forward because in a marathon for 99% of the people in the race, it's not about winning. It's about finishing and trying to do your best. And that's what I love about it because you meet people from all over the world and everybody helps each other out no matter what, right? I've had groups of people where we form our own group and we stick together and help each other through the race for whatever reason. Uh, one year it was blisteringly hot and a spectator handed me this one pound block of ice and said, here, cool yourself off. So I rubbed it on my head and my neck for a while till I felt cool. And I just handed it to the next person. Mm, and the next person, ever, yeah, <laughs> yeah, big block of sweaty ice, but it felt great. And so, you know, so we just passed it back and forth between us for a while. And then we passed it to the next group behind us. And that was actually the year before the bombing. Right. That so was the bombing was in 2013, 2013. And so because I had worked in EMS, the company that I worked for, we contracted for Newton and I would occasionally get staged at the marathon in Newton and the year before was so blisteringly hot, which actually plays a big role into the response of the actual bombing that we got pulled to um, man the marathon and I was on the sidelines and I met you right mm -hmm. before Heartbreak Hill yeah. and it was super, super hot. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to mess up your time because you just, you stopped and you just came over to chat and I felt really bad, but you're like, no, it's fine. It's like really yeah. hot out. I was just running from water stop to water stop that year. It was like 90s that year. I had a lot of my friends dropped out because it was just so hot. Um, and I just decided early on, it was, okay, we'll just, I'll just do a nice easy run to each water stop, take my time. The goal then was to finish the race. As I always said, every marathoner has, uh, has really two goals. One is usually a time goal that they want to get, you know, a new personal best or they want to do a qualifying time for Boston. And then when usually, which happens more often than not, that that falls apart, the next goal is just to finish the race. A marathon is so grueling, sometimes that's a victory in itself, just being able to finish. I think <laughs> out of the 30 marathons I've run, I've only dropped out of one, and that was at Marine Corps here. Um, I got sick at about mile 17, started throwing up, and I said, okay, when that happens, I'm done. It's just not worth going another nine miles and it's more likely I'm going to end up dehydrated and even sicker. So it's better to just stop then and call it a day. But that's the only race I've ever dropped out of. You talked about, you know, helping that lady at Heartbreak Hill. Mm -hmm. And that's really common in the marathons. Everybody's helping each other out. I mean, the crowds are cheering you on. There's always, Everyone's got signs. And yep. I don't think anyone who has not lived in Boston or, you know, gone to school in Boston understands the the sense of community, the sense of, like, it's a big event, the Boston yeah. Marathon. Everyone, it's Patriots Day. It's this, this huge holiday for us. Everyone gets excited for Marathon Monday. Talk about like the crowds so, of just yes. running the marathon. So that's one of the great things about Boston is that, um, and that's one of the things I miss. I haven't run a marathon in three years now. I really, if I was going to go back and do another race, I'd try to do Boston again. It's so spectacular a race. People from all over the world struggle to meet the qualifying times, and it's the only race you have to qualify for. But um, it starts very uh, rural out in Hopkinton, and it's a two-lane street, so it's very crowded. They stage people in corrals of 1,000 people each, and there's three or four wave starts, depending upon how you count them, just so they get everybody out. So from there, you run in a very rural race, and once you hit... Uh, Newton and you hit mile 16, then it becomes very urban. So now you're running in the city and crowds are different. The crowds are bigger and going up Heartbreak Hill can be struggle sometimes because 
You smell everybody's got their barbecues out, so you can barbecue <laughs> chicken and dogs, and people are offering you beers. They've usually got the score of the Red Sox game, or you know, they're yelling and cheering. People will offer you any. If you want to stop there and have a beer and a hot dog, you can. You're probably not going to finish if you do. Um, <laughs> But for me, that was always like one of the high points of the course was getting the heartbreak, running up over that hill, because then, you know, it's just downhill. Another year I was running it, uh, I was running this woman who was like right around that point. She was like, I can't make it. I can't make it. And we we're just barely in sight of the Sitco sign. And I just looked at her and I said, come on, I'll run with you. You see that sign, that Sitco sign down there? And she goes, yeah. I said, all you have to do is run to that sign. And she's what? I said, just forget about everything else. Keep your eye on that sign and run to that sign. And that's really what uh, a marathon is about. If you start out thinking 26 miles, you're probably going to have trouble. But you run it a mile a time. You run it a step at a time. And so I said, we're just going to run together to that sign. Because once you get to that sign, there's a mile to go in the race. And anybody can finish a marathon when there's a mile to go. It's when you've got five or six miles to go and you're really feeling crappy. The one, the example I give people is remember in school, in high school, you always had to run the mile in, in phys ed and everybody would like run the mile as hard as they could. So take that feeling that you had when you ran the mile, you were exhausted, you were tired, your muscles were sore, you were having trouble, you're breathing so hard. Well, take that and figure you got to do about another 45 minutes of it. That's the last six miles of a marathon. <laughs> you're exhausted, your legs are sore, everything in your body says you've got to stop, you've got to quit. And this is where you got to go one mile at a time, one step at a time, and you're really just trying to coerce yourself through it. You can do it, but you just got to really work it mentally to get through it. So anyway, so she ran and we kept going and she got to the sign and she said, oh my God, now what? I said, we're there. I said, just the, the expression is right on Hereford and left on Boylston. And that's the finish line. Yeah. And that's the famous expression for finishing Boston. And that's where, uh, for me, the race changed because that was when the bombing happened is when I had just taken my right onto Hereford and was getting and took my left onto uh, Boylston. And so it's this beautiful day. Yep. And I, every year I track you because you register with numbers and there's little chips on your bibs and on your shoes, right? Yep. So no cheating. <laughs> and there's little check marks that you run by for anyone that doesn't know anything about races and everything. And if you follow someone's number, the like the BAA, Boston Athletic Association, the races, you can check in at someone's based on their bib number and see how they're doing. So I had been hoping to, I was not dedicated to the marathon, but I was working very close to it and was hoping I would get pulled again like I had done the year before. But knowing that it had been so hot the year before, they had had extra trucks staffed and they were like, nope, we don't want to do this because it was kind of a kind of an MCI, mass casualty incident, the year before with all the heat, we transferred so many runners to the local hospitals. And the thing about local hospitals in Boston is there are five level one trauma centers in Boston for adults and three level one pediatric trauma centers. And then there are other level two trauma centers. So there's there's a lot, there's a shit ton of hospitals in Boston. So there's also a lot of ambulance companies. There's Boston EMS, there's private ambulance companies. I work for a private ones. I am at work tracking you on my phone on their website and seeing where you're running and seeing your time and everything. But at the same time, I'm also listening to our Boston Marathon dispatch. So our area of the course had their own dispatchers, you know, organizing the ambulances. They had fly cars. They were also 
uh, organizing medical tents throughout Newton and where they were, and bicycles and all sorts of medical assets that were just treating runners and bystanders and everyone, just regular marathon operations. And so a marathon is run like an, an MCI already because there's just so many things that can happen and they're expecting to have a lot of people that are injured just being sick from this sheer exertion. So this whole incident command structure is already in place for a marathon. And I've worked several large events like marathons and this is, it's extremely organized, it's very, very well planned and it's just already there. And it's just kind of this funny, there's all these little things that went into the response to the Boston Marathon that to terrorists just they just didn't know and it's a lot a lot of lives got saved because of these little things like just like the weather the year before how we operate marathon medical uh, response structures and also the time of day so i was listening to the dispatchers and actually we i we had taken a a patient to a, another hospital but i was also listening to cmed so cmed is the dispatch for triaging the ambulances to local hospitals. So whenever you call in to an ER to say, hey, we're coming, you have to go through CMED. They say, okay, you know, ambulance 30, you want to go to Mass General Hospital, you know, switch on over to CMED 7. You can now talk to, we're going to patch you into Mass General. They, they control all that. And that's their day-to-day -day function of like, you call in trauma alerts, you call in stroke alerts, let the hospital know what you have. But during a mass casualty incident, they change over to this whole organizational structure of what hospitals have what resources and how many beds, where are the ambulances going. They talk with incident command on the ground. So this whole like TV idea of, oh my God, the ambulances are all rushing to the closest hospital and the hospitals are getting overwhelmed. That like that's nonsense. That's not what happens. Everything is going through CMED. CMED knows how many ORs Mass General has they know how many ORs and how many neurosurgeons the Brigham and Women Hospital has. They know how many pediatric beds Tufts Floating Hospital for Children's has versus Boston Children's Hospital has. And, and they are organizing all the ambulances to go there appropriately based on what they have. So you can hear some of this. You can hear one half of the conversation from CMED, but I could also hear our own dispatchers. So I did not hear about the bombing on the news I heard about an incident on our dispatch radios, that there was a big incident, that there was explosions, and then I saw that you had not finished yet. So I'm kind of freaking out. <laughs> At this point, I'm just being in the truck and being like, oh my God, I want to go and help. But what was happening for you? What, what did you hear? You didn't know it was an explosion at first. No, actually, no. Because like I said, I'd just taken my right on Hereford Street, and I was probably midway down the street, and I heard this loud sound um, to me, it sounded like a uh, transformer exploding because I've heard those before from in storms and stuff. Every once in a while you hear one. So it was this loud boom, like a transformer going off. And people kind of, we looked at each other and I thought, um, okay, not a big deal. And as I'm running up the street, I just noticed that some of the spectators, I won't say running, but there are people coming down the street away from Boylston Street. I was like, oh, okay. On the course, right? On, no, the, on the sidewalks, because okay. the sidewalks were um, have barricades set up. So that's the other thing about, about that race is that there's a lot of barricades. So people are really hemmed in. So if there's a big panic, it's really difficult for people to get anywhere because, mm -hmm. of the, because there is security. Because even then, um, spectators had to go through... I think metal detectors, but somehow these guys had slipped in the back way walking up the sidewalks. So, so I was on Hereford Street. I heard that 
And I, and I said to myself, oh, and actually I said this, that couldn't be a car bomb that, or a bomb. That must have just been a transformer. And I guess I've you know, heard this for people who've been involved in these situations before. There's an amount of disbelief. You can't believe this is happening to you or happening in the area where you are. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So as I turned the corner, I turned the corner in Hereford onto Boylston, the second bomb went off. The first bomb went off at the finish line. So it was a distance away. So you got the explosion, a bit of the echoing of the report of the explosion. But the next one went off. And that one I knew was a bomb right then and there. And immediately the police closed the course. They just came up, stopped everybody right there on the course. It's about 600 yards from that turn to the finish line. And it's a slight downhill. So I could see the finish line. I could see there was chaos down there. And I'm like, okay, the race is done right now. I said, there's no way I'm crossing that finish line. My first concern was I asked the police what was going on. And I could hear on this patrolman's radio, um, her radio was just like going nuts. And you could hear all kinds of calls going on. It was difficult to make sense of what people were talking about. And she pushed us all back down Hereford Street. And so now it's really starting to back up because you got like 30,000 runners in the Boston Marathon. And where we were finishing was about midway. So there's probably a good 12 to 15,000 runners behind me. So that street's starting to back up. And they're going, go back to Kenmore, go back to Kenmore. I'm like, I'm not going back. I know where my bus is, is on the other side of Boylston, usually parked. I didn't know exactly where, but we always, my club has a bus and we always park on the, in the same location. So that was my first thing. My second thought was two of my friends who were running with me um, were just ahead of me. So right around Kenmore Square, my hamstrings were feeling a bit tight. I was feeling sore. And I said to them, hey, you guys go ahead. I'll see you at the finish line. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm just going to cruise it in. You guys are doing good. Just go ahead and do it. So I knew they were ahead of me, but I didn't know where. And I figured by the time it went off that they had um, that they had finished. But I didn't find out till later that no, they didn't. And they were actually right next to the second bomb when it went off. They were on the opposite side of the street, though. So they were probably a good 40, 50 feet away from it when it went off. And they've told me they 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 saw things that they said they never would have seen maybe in a war zone of people flying through the air and pieces and blood everywhere. Cause they, one of my friends was actually looking at that backpack when it exploded. They, anyway, so it was traumatic for everybody. They got onto the wrong side of the course cause the police immediately closed the course, closed Boylston street. You couldn't get back and forth across. So they were on the opposite side from the bus. I was on, I, I looked and the cop was pushing us back down Hereford street. And I said, no, I got to get to the other side to get to that bus. So I sprinted, I just broke through the line, sprinted across the street at the Prudential Center and started going through all these back alleys behind the Prudential Center that I really wasn't aware of. I'd never been on before, but I kind of had a general direction where I was going. But it was absolute chaos. Nobody really knew in the first few seconds, minutes afterwards what was Mm -hmm. happening. So I stopped a few people and I said, what's going on? Because I thought, well, maybe there was another transformer that exploded. And somebody said, no, the cars are exploding. There's car bombs. So I don't know if I'm supposed to walk in the middle of the street or walk on the sidewalk. I don't even know where to walk is safe now. Right. And so I'm walking down this back alley and this woman, I don't even know who she is. She comes up to me and she said, did you just finish the race? And I said, yeah, because all I've got on is my, my shorts and a singlet top and I'm bathed in sweat. And the problem, one of the things about Boston is you finish in the afternoon and in the afternoon, the sea breeze comes in. And it's a very cool sea breeze. So I'm starting to get cold now. And it's April in Boston. And it's April. Yeah. And I'm getting cool and I'm in these alleys. So it's all shadows. And this woman says, oh, you just finished the race. 
do you want to borrow my cell phone so you can call somebody and let them know you're okay? And I was like, oh my God, right? I was like, I, I almost cried when she said that because I hadn't really thought about that. At that point, all I wanted to do was get to the bus and get my phone and call people. So she hands me the cell phone and I call my wife, Nancy, and she doesn't pick up in time. So I leave her a message because I know she's always listening to CNN or MSNBC and she's yeah. going to hear about it soon. So I just leave her a message and I said, Nance, I said, I didn't finish the race. I just crossed Boylston Street. There's bombs or explosions on the course. I don't know what's happening. I'm safe. I'm going to go to the bus. I'll call you when I get there, probably in about 45 minutes when I find the bus because all my stuff is on the bus. Yeah. And I hung up. And then as I'm walking down the street, um, there was a homeless guy. Yeah. And he had been collecting Mylar blankets from self probably to keep warm. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you look cold. You look like you need this. Do you want one? And he hands me one of the blankets. And I was like, thank you. You know? Yeah. And so to this day, <laughs> I don't pass homeless people if they're asking for money, if they're at street corners or whatever. <laughs> if I'm in the car and there's somebody on this, like by the traffic light, yeah. I figure I have to pay back. Yeah. So, so those are just a couple of the little stories, you know, just to kind of digress. I think one of the, yeah. I think one of the best stories from the race that doesn't get reported, all the stuff that the medical people did, they have tons of stories. Mm -hmm. um, my stories are more from the runner's side. So I know people who were stuck in Kenmore Square, runners, and they're cold and they were shivering. And people were going up into their houses, making coffee and tea and bringing it down to the runners to keep them warm. I had one friend of mine, she was really cold. And a spectator handed her her jacket. The spectator said, here, take my jacket. And she said, all right, I'll just take it till I, till I warm up. Went, no, you keep it. It was like a $100, you know, athletic jacket that she just gave this friend of mine. Yeah. And I know other friends who were like, they were like having people come up, up into their apartments to stay warm. So there's all these great little stories of uh, people helping out. So that's how big a community, that's why Boston is such a great race. Because it is a community. It's like a family, giant party, barbecue cookout for the whole city. Yeah. For all the cities along the course. Yeah. And so there's all these great little stories. Um, a friend of mine who works for the marathon was handing out medals. So what happened was people leave their, they have uh, baggage deck tents in Boston Common. And because of the bombing, they didn't let anybody get their stuff. They had to search them all with dogs. Yeah. So it took a, it took a while. And so people would have had to come back the next day or so or have their stuff shipped to them. And so my friend that worked there was on one of the teams that was handing out the bags. And what they were doing was giving finisher medals to people. And this one woman, he said, walked up to him and said, you know, I didn't really finish the race. Can I have a medal anyway? And he's like, no, you, you finished the race. You could finish that day. And that's all that matters. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, he's got pictures of himself with people crying, getting their medal for that day. And I'd actually seen some of these medals. I've seen 2013 medals for sale on eBay. And I was like, how can anybody sell that? And that's one of my prized medals that I would never yeah. part with is the 2013 medal. So that was the thing that got me was all of these, you know, great little personal stories where people came up because Boston does have that sort of image. People have a perception of it, of being very standoffish and not very friendly. Everybody I've ever run the race with says they can't believe how friendly and how nice and how great the city is and how great the race is. Yeah, because people, we care about the race. It is an important part of of our society there. Yeah, it's a huge part of the community, but also the running community. And I I agree. I don't think people talk enough about the amazing things that happened with the runners right after the race, which is why mm -hmm. I wanted to talk to you and get your side of the story from this, mm -hmm. because obviously I talk about the medical aspect of it and everyone talks a lot about that. But 
there's just there's so many beautiful stories from the race and yeah. people running to donate blood right afterwards. I mean, right. so many people just went right to Mass General, mm-hmm. and which is pretty far away. Boylston to Mass General is probably like, what, two miles maybe? Yeah. And they kept running and they just went and donated blood. I like the story of the uh, doctor who had just finished the race and the bombs went off. And he just kept running. And I think he worked at Mass General. He ran to Mass General because he knew he was going to be needed there. So he just ran a marathon. I don't know how many miles it is, five miles to Mass General or something. Yeah, I don't know. We'll have to look it up. But traffic was, <laughs> traffic was insane. Yeah. So he be. knew the only way he could get there was run. So he ran the rest of the way. And he showed up there just as you know some of the ambulances were showing up there. Um, so, that, yeah, I think it's all the great little stories. I think a lot of people know the big stories. Um, they've probably seen the Mark Wahlberg movie about it, which I refuse to see to this day. Yeah, I, um, I won't watch any of those movies. I, I can't watch that. The other thing that kind of surprised me was uh, even for a few months afterwards, I don't know if it was PTSD or not, but I didn't notice this. But I was going to work one day and they're doing some construction next to the company. You know, they have the big dump trucks. Yeah. Right? So the big dump trucks, they swing up and then they drive off. And so they have this huge steel door that yep. suddenly gets pulled by the pile. And then it swings and it slams into the back of the truck. So I yeah. was walking and I all of a sudden heard this loud slam, bang. And it sounded just like the bomb. And I shivered. I, I was like, and I've never had that before. And I was like, oh my God, I knew where that's, it sounded exactly like it. And I never thought I would have that experience just from that. Yeah. And yeah, I'd say to this day, I'm a little bit sensitive to a noise like that, but yeah. it's not as bad. But I remember like, this was like only like maybe a few weeks later and I, practically froze in my steps i was like almost i was like oh my god because i thought it was that again it just hit me when you had run the marathon before you mentioned to me that you always ran down the left side of boylston too yeah so if you had kept up with your friends you would have been right where that bomb had gone that they had seen yeah i always turn that corner and i stay on the left side um just because it's shorter and i'm lazy i don't want to run across the road (laughs) but yeah, I would have been probably right, because they were right next to it. On the right side of the street. Yeah, they were on the right side. And I, and so, yeah, I would have been there on the left. Um, but I'm, so I'm kind of glad I didn't stay with them. But to catch up on them, we did find them. I did find them later. We were, we got to the bus, and everybody on the bus, we had a whole list of everybody that came in from our running club. And so everybody was following, hey, did you see so-and-so? And I said, yeah, I saw them in Kenmore. They're okay. I saw so-and-so. And the only two people we couldn't account for were my friends Maddie and Charlie. They Nobody knew where they were. And this is like half an hour, 45 minutes after everything had gone crazy. We still couldn't locate them because they had gotten stuck on the other side of the course, couldn't get back over. And turns out that they eventually did find a friend of ours and they managed to make a cell phone call to Maddie's wife. And then she called somebody on our on our bus or we called her and found out, yeah, that they were both OK. Uh, but it was pretty uh, it was about a 45 minutes or an hour. Uh, it was pretty crazy. And I was getting a lot of calls from people, my family and friends, and even from my work, asking if I was okay because they knew I was in the race. And that was one of the stories people said they that they shut down the cell systems that day. They didn't. It was just swamped because the cell systems were everybody who suddenly was on their cell phones at the same time. So some people yeah. had difficulty, yeah. but I know for a fact it wasn't because I was able to use it. So that was good. But yeah, it was crazy. The police were everywhere. The chaos was just unimaginable because nobody knew what was going on with that event when it when it happened right away um, I had friends that were working the med tent they were first responders in the med tent and they said they felt kind of frustrated I talked to them later on and they said because all they could do is really just they were grabbing all the boxes of gauze and, and 
gloves they could and giving them to the doctors and nurses and the first respond other first responders that were trying to handle everything. Plus, they had the problem of all of the uh, fencing that was put up in place around the finish line was impeding people's progress to be able to get to the injured because this stuff was blown over and was all you tripped over it and it was everywhere. So yeah, that's part of the chaos that happened. But I know a lot of the people who are first responders, it was, they kicked into gear, right? Their training happened, even though it wasn't something that they expected to do. Yeah. I think, you know, the city can be very proud of the fact that, yeah, they had put plans in place in order to deal with a, a different situation. But what they got and they everybody kicked in and, and their training happened and they just responded appropriately. My understanding, you know, there wasn't a lot of panic. And I think a lot of people were saved because of the amount of medical facilities that were right there at the finish line to triage. And I still keep thinking back to that picture of uh, what's the name, the guy in the cowboy hat carrying or, yeah, carrying him and hold, actually, actually holding the guy's uh, femoral artery closed yeah. so he wouldn't die You know, with his bare hands. When I first saw the picture, it looked like he's got a bloody rag in his hand and it's the guy's femoral artery. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. And that's an amazing story. And they made a movie about uh, that too. Yep. And it was interesting. So I kept working that day and everyone's leaving the city and then coming into the city, they basically shut down the city. Yep. And so we kept working because emergencies other than the marathon kept happening. So we were bringing patients in, you know, someone was having a heart attack, not related to the marathon. And I remember we were bringing someone into Mass General later on. I think it was like seven o'clock at night and the, the bombing happened at like just before three. Because mm-hmm. it happened just before shift change at all the hospitals. So all this extra yep. staff was there. And um, I remember getting searched by SWAT teams going into Mass General. Mm-hmm. And this happened for the entire week. All this was going on. There was just police. And every time you tried to enter a hospital in an ambulance, your entire ambulance got searched by the SWAT team. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they were respectful of it. And we knew that it was happening. But... I remember we were we were cardioverting someone, we were shocking someone, and the SWAT team was like, "We have we have to search you," and we're like, "Well, you can search us while we're moving because this guy we're about to do CPR on this guy." But yeah. they're like, "Okay, yeah, it's fine." But yeah, I mean, everything we did was searched, and there it was a ghost town that actual day. It was mm. crazy. It was just a very surreal experience to see Boston empty. Yeah, in the middle of the day. Yeah. I remember, yeah, we, we got out, we get out on the bus and cause people were saying, Oh, it must be crazy. I mean, the emergency vehicles flying, I mean, they were flying everywhere. They were blowing through traffic lights. I saw people almost get run down by emergent by, especially the state police running around. It was pretty crazy. There weren't a lot of regular cars, civilian cars. I'll put it that way on the streets, but yeah, yeah. we, we get out on the bus in time. I guess they'd closed a lot of the highways and bridges and tunnels and everything else, yeah. searching everything because yeah, they didn't know at that point, nobody knew how many people were involved. I remember them asking to do the internet searches. They had photographs that they, from, uh, that they had taken along the finish line course, mm-hmm. asking to identify people. You know, everybody yeah. was looking, do you recognize this person? Do you recognize that person? And, actually remember getting home that night looking at all a bunch of the photographs. Yeah. Um, I think we all did. We all just looked at the photos and tried to recognize anybody. So one thing that happened, I was doing that that night and, uh, and, and Nancy was sitting next to me and we're looking through all these photos and it must have been part of an adrenaline reaction, you know, when you have an adrenaline crash because it's been such a traumatic day. And I looked at this one photo and I just started laughing. Right. And I'm pretty sure it was an adrenaline reaction. Um, so the picture 
was of these two mass state police troopers. You know, they get their their smoky bear hats on and their bloused <laughs> out pants and polished yep. boots, and they're you know, and they get their blouses on. And this one cop has got his nightstick out, and he's like poking at this thing by a telephone pole, and you can see he's like he's like afraid of it. So he's like he's like arms length poking at it, and you, and the other guy's like like got his hands in front of his face like it's going to jump at him or explode. Right? <laughs> and, and I just started laughing like heck. <laughs> and, and Nancy's going, what is so funny? What are you laughing about? I said, I know what that is, right? And this pile that was next to the next to the telephone pole, there were these two guys that had been running with me all day dressed as giant cheeseburgers. <laughs> and to me, it was just the funniest thing. And, and she's like, I don't get it. I said, maybe it's a bin there. Maybe it's an adrenaline thing. But right now, I said, my stomach is hurting. I'm laughing so hard at the way these cops are reacting to a giant hamburger outfit. <laughs> so... I think that was kind of like a kind of helped me get through it a little bit. But yeah, I, I, to this day, I'm going to say it's an adrenaline reaction. <laughs> well, I remember one of your first Boston marathons. Uh, you, you got beat by a guy running in a giraffe suit. Well, that was my friend. No, no, that was. <laughs> so I had two friends. They ran it the first time. So I always called myself the accidental marathoner because I was always a fitness runner. We would do two miles every day. Every day, two miles, me and my friends. And then one day, these friends of mine said, hey, we should try a marathon. I was like... That escalated quickly. <laughs> I don't look like a skinny Kenya. I never went. And I said, no, no, no. And they said, okay. Finally, they said, we're going to raise money. So they basically got you can, a couple ways you can get into Boston. You can qualify. You can be an invited runner, such as a Kenyan. Or you can... Uh, so qualify is one. The other way is you can raise money for a charity or you do volunteer work for one of the local clubs or one of the local uh, activities. Mm -hmm. So I've gotten in through qualifying and through my club volunteer activities. Anyways, this is before I even was in a club. We, they decided they wanted to run a Boston Marathon, so they were going to raise money for charities. And I said, all right, I'll run as a bandit. And back then, running as a bandit at Boston wasn't as disdained an activity as it is today. Nowadays, you run as a bandit and they want to ban you for life and, you know, all kinds of other heinous things. But back then it was sort of a half accepted idea. So I was going to do that. Anyways, I overtrained, got a stress fracture in my tibia, wasn't able to run. So I was going to the finish line to see them run. And yeah, one of my friends got, I said, I said to him, I said, I don't care. I would have had a heart attack running as hard as I could not to get beaten by a guy in a giraffe suit. <laughs> but yeah, so I saw them at the finish of Boston and I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. I'll try to run it. And so that's when I said, I'm, I'm going to qualify to run it. So it took me four races to qualify, and I finally qualified and ran it. I'm glad I never ran it as a bandit. <laughs> Have you noticed any changes in the running community of, like, Boston since the marathon? Has it gotten closer? Is anything that's kind of different? And you went back and ran it the next year, didn't you? Yeah, 2014. So if you had crossed halfway but hadn't crossed the finish line – you were given a time-waived entry that year. So there's 7,000 people that got time-waived entries uh, that next year. And me and all my friends, we were back running it next year. There was like no way we weren't going to run it. Yeah, of course. But the big change for me was all the security, especially at the start and at the runner's village in the beginning in Hopkinton. It's like we got to go. We're going through metal detectors. Like we're practically naked. We get shorts and a singlet on a pair of sneakers. And we're going through a metal detector. Yeah. Uh, plus, with all of the emergency and the police and the security, they took all the good parking spots. So now all <laughs> the runners' buses are further out in Hopkinton. When I first started running, there's a this place called Colella's Market in Hopkinton on the main street. Our buses used to park there, which was like 
five steps from the corrals and the starting line. Then because the race got really, really big in the last 10 years, we got moved out to the high school, which is maybe a half mile away. Now with all the security people, we got moved even another half mile away. So the runners keep getting pushed out and the security people got all the great parking spots, but that's okay. <laughs> it, the, it's a big race. I mean, it's tough to get into, uh, but that's part of its allure is that it's a tough race to get into, but it's really well worth it if you run it. Yeah. And you finished the next year. Yeah. So the next year we finished, again, we ran it for the fun of it, but we were all going to definitely run it that year. Uh, one of my friends, Katie, she got to mile 18 and she was dehydrated. She went into the med tent. And I think they gave her two IVs of saline in the med tent. She was in there for like 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And they said to her, okay, well, we're going to call you uh, a ride to the finish line. She says, no way, I'm finishing this race today. And she pulled the IV out of her arm and went and finished the race. <laughs> but she's pretty hardcore. Yeah, she just need a little booster. I mean, after yeah. almost getting you know blown up the first time, you want to finish that race. <laughs> yeah, she said there was no way that year she wasn't finishing that race. Yeah, I can't blame her. Um, so it was... It, so that's the big change um, that I see in the race. But my concern when I ran it that year was that there'd be so much security that it wouldn't people wouldn't want to go to the race or they would right. be worried about it. And overall, I saw the crowds seem to be the same because I was worried that they weren't going to let people have coolers on Heartbreak Hill or have their barbecue grills on Heartbreak Hill. Right. But there were still barbecues and coolers and people having a lot of fun and setting up you know, lawn chairs, watching the runners go by. And so that was good. I mean, because that's really a big allure. Especially things like uh, when you're running, you go through uh, what's called the Scream Tunnel, uh, <laughs> which is out at Wellesley College. It used to be a women's college. Now it's co-ed. But you'd run through there, and you could hear this from a mile away. You could hear all of these college students screaming their heads off from a mile away. And you get up there, and it's deafening. But it's great. You're like right about 11 or 12 miles. You're halfway. And it's a nice boost you get through there. And they're all holding up crazy signs. Usually the most one is, kiss me, I'm a senior. Kiss me, I'm a junior. So, yeah, and you see people, runners, getting kisses, and it's it's just a crazy place on the course. It's just a tradition there. So it's, uh, yeah. A bunch of sweaty runners are treated like rock stars. And exactly, <laughs> It's exactly. a weird, <laughs> weird environment. Well, thank you for sharing your story and the runner's story, the story of the community of Boston running in the Boston Marathon. I think people don't necessarily hear that side of the story when they talk about it, and the resiliency of the running community of Boston and I guess the world as much because Boston is really a, a marathon of the world. It is. I mean, it, that's, what's great. I mean, it's, it's uh, one of the great things about living in that area is that this race is right here. We don't have, I don't have to travel far to go to it. I have a great group of friends, uh, marathon friends, and that's the other part of running marathons. It's a great social friendship camaraderie when you're running with all these people. I have friends that I've known for 20 plus years that I've run with and meeting them every Sunday to run has been great. And being able to do this race together and Boston, I grew up with the race. I never paid attention to it much when I was growing up, I saw it. And then it all of a sudden became, you know, part of my life and I understood what it means. And what another thing that people don't understand is that for countries like Kenya and Ethiopia, Boston Marathon is the equivalent of the Super Bowl. To them, that's the thing they go for. Yeah, we have the Super Bowl and we celebrate it. In those countries, they celebrate the Boston Marathon. That's the race that they all want to win. I mean, there's New York, there's London, there's all these other great races. But Boston being 115 continuous years or whatever the number is, might be 117 now, I forget. Continuous, every single year, even through war years, they've run the Boston Marathon. 
So it's the longest running tradition marathon uh, in the world. So that's what makes it so great. That's awesome. Thank you again. Thank you for being able to talk to me, for being guilted in because you're my dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs>